best tool ever devised for understanding how the world works. Science is a very human form of knowledge. We are always at the brink of the node. Science is a collaborative enterprise spinning the generations. We remember those who prepared the way, seeing through them also. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us for uh, May's installment of Beer with BMSIS. I'm Jacob Huck-Misra. This is the uh, podcast that features the research, philosophies, ideas, and discussions with members of the Blue Marble Space Institute of Science. You can learn more about our institute online at uh, bmsis.org, and you can listen to previous editions of our podcast at bmsis.org slash podcast. This month, we're going to try a little bit different of a format and have a discussion uh, between myself and uh, Sanjoy Sam um, about the topic, Why Explore Space? As a, uh, a research institute focused on space exploration, it seems like a very basic question. There's one that you run into a lot, and you know, the, the answer is not immediately obvious exactly what the best answer is to that question. But uh, in keeping with tradition, we have uh, Jeff Bowman from last week's uh, session who is going to today present us with his uh, favorite tasty beverage. Uh, and in keeping with tradition as well, there's a disclaimer that you must respect your local laws and only imbibe alcohol if you are of age in your country of residence. So thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Jacob. So today's beer is uh, Irish Death, and when I went down to the store to buy a bottle to show you guys this morning, uh, they were out. And so um, it is uh, produced by the Iron Horse Brewery here in Washington in the city of Ellensburg. It's quite a good beer. I've, I've really come to like it recently. If you're a fan of darker beers, I'd recommend it. The Iron Horse Brewery describes this as a dark, smooth ale. I would say that it's uh, fairly typical of, a, of the Irish stout genre. It's got a nice light chocolate flavor, but it's not too rich or too intense. Um, I'd recommend it with uh, you know, a nice uh, shepherd's pie or some uh, mac and cheese, something with a little bit of... Uh, uh, oomph to it. Be warned that it does have a fairly high alcohol content, 7.8%. And uh, one thing that I really like about this beer, in addition to um, its name kind of harkening back to the the home of the stout, is uh, how its name reminds us of, of two distinct perils that I think are somewhat relevant to astrobiology. One would be the perils of monoculture agriculture, and the second would be of severe ethical failings. So Irish death, of course, harkens back to the Irish potato famine of the 1844 to 48 era, which is really uh, uh, the largest in a continuing series of famines to hit the uh, nation of Ireland, brought about in part by an over-reliance on potatoes as the sole food crop and also by um, extremely poor uh, management and ethical failings by the, the English colonizers of Ireland. A little bit about the biology real quick. The potato famines were partially brought around by, by the potato blight, which is called by a really interesting organism called Phytophthora infestans, uh, which was for many years uh, classified as a fungus. This is one of these very nondescript single-celled eukaryotes that really defy any ability to, to describe them taxonomically, uh, but it's really not a fungus. Uh, taxonomically, it's much closer to a diatom, so you can think of it as a as an algae-like uh, single-celled uh, organism. And that's the introduction to the beer. Today we have Sanjoy Sam and Jacob Huck Misra, and they're going to be talking about reasons and motives for space travel. All right, thanks so much, Jeff. I'm going to have to try and uh, find that beer. It sounds tasty. So uh, today, um, Sanjoy and I are going to lead a discussion and have a bit of a conversation, but then, of course, everybody else, feel free to jump in as usual, and uh, we can just have uh, kind of a fun discussion. 
So the basic question we want to try and look at is why explore space? And uh, Jeff was our speaker last week, and he talked about some of his uh, issues talking with members of, of Congress and, and people in D.C. about their understanding of, of science funding and the role of science. And this is one of the questions that comes up there. Sanjoy was just talking about it being, uh, you know, just talking with one of his friends who's not in, in science or in space science, and, you know, it comes up with people who are interested in science but do not necessarily participate in space exploration. Space just seems so far away, so esoteric, so beyond us, and there's very immediate practical problems here on Earth. You know, shouldn't we be... You know, stating cancer is a very common reaction. You know, why, why go to the moon when we have cancer here and starving children and wars? And, and these are important problems. So, Sanjoy, perhaps as a way of starting, I kind of liked how, you know, you, you replied to your friend, you know, in, in a casual setting. If somebody says, you know, why explore space? I mean, what's, what would you say? The way I, I talked about the topic is just rather than me being in the scientific field and telling him the reasons as to why space exploration, I kind of turned the conversation on its head and invited him to think of a society where the engineering and scientific landscape is not focused on looking up in the stars and, and wondering what's there and appreciating beyond the science, you know, the reasons of why we exist and what is our role in this vast place. And and it was interesting because we ended up coming to the, the conclusion that it would be inherently unhuman to not wonder and seek to understand what the unknown. And so over the ages, from understanding that Polaris is the northern star, we as a civilization have used our knowledge of the sky to increase our reach in on Earth first and now in space. So understanding the northern star has allowed humanity to explore by ship nearby its coasts to extend its reach, you know, and then as technology improved with the invention of the clock, then the ability to know your longitude, which allowed more or less safe exploration beyond the site of coast to new lands and discover new resources, and now we have the technology to leave the Earth and find our ways outside of, of the Earth. So it's just been a natural human progression to seek to understand its, its place and in the meantime appreciate a lot of new resources that they didn't know existed that can then enhance that technology and kind of have the snowball effect. So, yeah, it was essentially coming back down to the foundations of what it is to be human. Well, I like that. I mean, it's, it's a very big picture way to look at it. I'm just thinking, you know, as the devil's advocate... So when Polaris was discovered to be facing north all the time, you know, were, were scientists being funded by taxpayer dollars to steady that problem? And I completely un you know, believe that that is of immense value, but maybe it gets a little tricky nowadays because you see scientists working on very specific problems for large amounts of money, and then there becomes a question of, is this a good sense of priority? And what you're talking about, there was no way of knowing what those priorities would be either. And that's one of the, the, the tricky parts here. You don't know that knowing the stars or, or, I mean, inventing a clock, you would not have immediately thought that this was going to be useful in navigation. But, but there were you know, tremendous advantages in that. But at the same time, there's a lot of science that doesn't lead to direct utility in that way, but so it's still valuable. Yeah, an example of that would be like the the big telescopes that are out there that are seeking understand physical cosmic information about the universe. So the, the the actual knowledge of that has very little impact 
to how we live our lives down on Earth. But like the engineering firms that build those telescopes, who hire hundreds of contractors to deliver individual parts, I think, and I would be happy to be to be corrected, that it's very difficult to quantitatively assess the economic reach of a major space program or major space telescope, just because it's so interwebbed with industry, with people contributing scientific knowledge, but also engineering skills, all the way down to the machinists, to the accountants who take into account buying the parts to create this other parts, you know, so big space events that seek to understand maybe esoteric questions have real impact and contribute, I think, importantly to the GDP. And I like to think of it as having a healthy space program puts a pulse to the economic well-being of a country. So you almost need to have some sort of esoteric, non-monetary goal to do some of these big projects, perhaps. So you need to search for the Higgs boson, or you need to try to reach Mars, or something like that, or put up a big space telescope, rather than, say, we're going to build uh, a, a fully electric car that can accelerate to 90 miles an hour. That's an argument that might be made. Like, shouldn't we be focused on practical problems that are also going to create large economic draw? A 90-mile-per-hour car will satisfy one economic niche, and being in the capitalist framework of a society that we are in, other parts have an economic niche, and thus there will be people who will exploit that niche to create a product, to bring in a workforce, and to make, if they are a purely profit-driven company, money out of it, but there are hundreds and thousands of non-profits out there that are being very successful and show that profit is not everything when creating an industry. And some of the space exploration missions can fit into that as well. Um, there's a lot of space exploration that is for profits. I mean, all the cargo transfers to the International Space Station is an industry that is for profits. But like any vibrant economy, you have industries that are for profit and non-profit. So I think it's just another economic niche that needs to be, that has been filled, you know. So it's, it's not that research cancer, cancer or explore space. You know, there's our, you can't make that duality. There's our two economic niches that have their funding to answer really important societal problems and questions. That's my view. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, think, I think that makes sense. And, you know, I'm, I'm trying to play devil's advocate a little bit here. One of the things I've run into a lot with this, and, you know, your argument is very good, but many people approach this immediately from a, not just a capitalistic point of view, but a utilitarian point of view, where when they ask why explore space, they're really asking what is the utility of studying space? So we talked a little bit about value theory, and, and I have a couple quotes I can pull in here to talk about some different types of value. But, you know, just to, to utilitarianism, it doesn't always have to be about money, but it's always about maximizing some sort of, of good. You know, whatever utility is, it could be money, well-being, happiness, quality of life, number of people, number of people living a, a quality life. So you, you can come up with whatever function you want to define utility, but at the end of the day, it's this mathematical treatment of our actions should strive to maximize some variable. But being human is not a mathematical equation. No. Being human, not necessarily. Perhaps what you do with being human is, is different. So one way of talking about that is the difference between intrinsic an instrumental value, where a human being might be intrinsically valuable, 
you're just by virtue of being human, nothing else having to do with you. Whereas instrumental value is value that has to do with what do you accomplish. You know, this this shovel has instrumental value because I can dig in the dirt with it. This engineer has instrumental value because they can engineer things. So that instrumental value is more commonly associated with utilitarianism. So is instrumental value more valuable than intrinsic value? It's a different kind of value. <laughs> And utilitarians may not recognize that intrinsic value is worth thinking about. So it's not so much which... You, you can acknowledge that there are both, and many philosophers will you know, say there are many types of value, and it's hard. How do you arbitrate between that? Because here's a land, and it looks beautiful, but it's also a great location for you know a condo development site. So what do you do? You have to arbitrate somehow. Well, I think it's an incomplete assessment if you're looking yeah. only at the instrument value, right? You're just not opening your eyes to the broader picture, and thus your assessment is skewed, I would argue. Like, intrinsic value is extremely important. The fact, the simple fact that space exploration exists as a discipline makes it valuable. But a utilitarian now might say, like, well, you just gave a great economic argument for why space exploration is, is, has a great economic niche. Now, maybe that's enough. Maybe we just explore space because it's a useful way to stimulate the economy. And sure, there's these esoteric goals, but... Maybe there's some reason you need these far-reaching goals to stimulate innovation. And, and you, you really don't need to think about intrinsic values. Just, you know, where, where are we going? Are we driving a buck? Are we, are, are we getting humanity to the next stage? I mean, it could be about populating the cosmos with humans and Earth life. That could be a utilitarian goal. But it, 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 it's hard to quantify how the existence of a space program, for example, inspires people to do their best because it's in terms of engineering optimization, in terms of scientific inquiry, because it, they're excited about it, right? How can you quantify how excitement impacts innovation? <laughs> I'm no, not I sure think, you can. I think that's very difficult. But it's a big driver. Like, I mean, most of the reasons, at least why I'm in, in the space exploration business, is because I was awed by the capability of humans when I was a kid. Yeah, you know, and um, and am I contributing to society today in a way that's impactful? I hope so. I don't know, but you know, that it's multiplying me by a million people, you know, and then you might have a really quantifiable impact. So, so there's another way of of looking at the idea of value that we've talked about, and what you're describing there, you could call uh, transformative value, and um, that's a term actually that was invented by a philosopher, Brian Norton. He's in environmental ethicist, uh, environmental philosopher. And I just said a little quote that sort of paraphrases it a little bit. He says, an object has transformative value if it provides an occasion for examining or altering a felt preference rather than simply satisfying it. Now, it's you know, written in, in kind of a philosophy lingo, but um, when I think of you know, the namesake of our organization, I think of the blue marble as an excellent example of transformative value. So in You know, Apollo 17, you know, flew up and, and you had an actual photograph taken by a human of the Earth. First time we've ever seen our planet from outside of it. Uh, and then this becomes one of the most widely circulated images on Earth's history. I think that image helped to uh, motivate the founding of the environmental movement. I think it did a lot for more than just direct space exploration. 
Um, and then people like us grew up with that image, whereas you know our parents and our grandparents were raised without having ever thought about whether Earth is a finite resource or not. Our parents saw the Apollo mission you know, land on the moon, and then we grew up with this. I saw a picture of Earth my whole life, you know, since grade school. You just we take it for granted. That's a tremendous transformation in just you know a short two or three generations, where it's now ingrained in our society that we live on a finite planet within space. Uh, the sustainability movement has drawn very heavily on that, just to realize that there are limits to how far we can go on this planet. And we should talk more about this blue marble and what it means and how we can appreciate it from space. Um, I want to give a little bit of an anecdote regarding that Earthrise image, that picture from Earth to space. So. The, one of the fathers of astronautics, um, his name was Ernst Stühlinger. He was German, a associate of von Braun. And he received a letter from a nun in, I think, the early 60s about the exact question we are talking about here, why explore space? And he replied to her really eloquent letter that you can find online. And at the end, he said, like, one of the most important things that came out of the space program is that image of Earth. That simple picture might be the reason why it's really worth it. And um, it was just cool because, you know, he grew up not having that vision of Earth from space. And he was a professional aerospace engineer. And he was awed by it, you know, just and that changed his perspective. And despite him knowing very well all the intricacies of aerospace and its impact on the economy, for him, it was that philosophical awakening that really made it all come together, which I thought was very interesting. Yeah. I think the blue marble is really interesting also as a picture because, you know, you look at it from space and you see the traditional pictures, you see Africa as the continent there. But nowhere does it say Africa, right? It is our reinterpretation based on our socioeconomic growth that associates this landmass with Africa. But it could be any one of them, any other landmass, right? It's just a brown continent with some wispy clouds next to water. And for me, that's really inspirational in the sense that, you know, from space, all the ethnic diversity that we have, religious differences, enriches the human species because we are just part of a sphere where the details of that cannot be perceived. And this, this, we can go back to the, the Carl Sagan pale blue dot, that we're all, we're all in this together. And yet, despite that all these differences really enrich in our societies, they're probably one of the source of most of the conflicts. And this duality is very frustrating for me. I think astronomy in particular maybe lends itself to this type of value more so than something else, say cancer research, where cancer research, you have a very targeted goal. You're trying to you know, treat a disease, and you have products that you develop. Um, astronomy is very much appreciated by the public, and it's, many, it's often in the case of these pictures. And you know, there were very historical ones we just discussed. But even the images that come out today, many members of the public are constantly in awe every day when there's a new planet discovered or a new picture of some you know, stellar flare, some distant you know, gas secretion around a black hole. The Hubble Ultra Deep Field, for me, was one of those images in college where... Oh my gosh, yes. I mean, just to describe it, if you haven't seen it, you, know, you should Google Hubble Ultra Deep Field, but the Hubble Space Telescope uh, stared at a patch of the sky, which I believe if you hold out your arm uh, holding a dime, it's about that size of the sky, and they stared at it for a total of nine to 11 some days of, of you know, observing time. Uh, and, and you have, this, you have this, this image that has all these, you know, all artificially colored, but all these points of light, every one of which is a galaxy, not a star, a galaxy. It's just so amazing. And 
in contrast to that, I, I think about, like, well, I read some of Carl Sagan's earlier work from the 60s, and, you know, back then, they thought there could be light, like, civilizations on Mars. He thought Phobos and Deimos were, like, artificial satellites put up by the intelligent Martians. I mean, in, in 50 to 60 years, we've gone so far to thinking there are robots on Mars to, like, wow, we live in a huge universe. So, I think one of the big the steps that was also recently achieved was the discovery of Kepler-186f being the Earth-sized planet in the habitable zone of an M-dwarf star. You know, like, if liquid water existed there, then all the ingredients necessary you need for life. And so the fact that Kepler stared at the patch of sky that is not really terribly big and has found thousands of planets, and we can now literally say thousands, right? I think more than a thousand have been confirmed, including Kepler-186f. It just shows that probably most stars out there have planets, and that's really humbling because 20 years ago that was not known. You know, so it's just it's it's humbling, and that's it's very humbling. important. It's important for our society to be humble. Yeah. <laughs> so I think the transformative aspect of science is that's perhaps one that most scientists will see, and probably most educators and many people in the public. But that might be some well. I think members of Congress even will understand that. So I think that's one that you may have more or less of an inclination to say how important is it. But I think you have to understand that a little bit. Everybody has, like, eaten food that they thought they wouldn't like, and now it's your favorite food because you finally tried it, or you listened to a style of music that you thought you'd hate, and now... Like, that's a transformation. So everybody understands that. So maybe another type of value that's a little more contentious is something called existence value. And so uh, philosopher Holmes Rolston III liked to talk about this. Um, and actually, uh, Woody Sullivan has been writing a little bit about this, too, in terms of planet having value. So the quotation I have here is, nature's projects are regularly valuable, as are its objects and its subjects, sometimes more, sometimes less. And... So the way to think about this is that Mars and Europa and Earth and Pluto and the asteroid belt, they're all nature's experiments. It, it's not, they're valuable because it's something that nature came up with. You know, maybe we can learn from it, maybe we can't, but it's, it's you know, it's Enceladus. It's, it's, or it's, it's Titan. It's, it's a world that's valuable because it has methane rain and a, and a cycle on it that's just Valuable because it exists. That's so here's, my, here's my turn to be devil's advocate, though. Yeah. <laughs> so valuable to whom? That's exactly the question that needs to be asked here. So most of our ethics, ethics is, is ethos. It's how should people treat each other. So you talk about ethics of space, you're already you know kind of deviating from classical philosophy. But when you talk about ethics, you, you, there is a valuer and a valuee. Most ethics we talk about is anthropocentric ethics. It assumes that humans are the valuer, and we're the ones who are deciding that. So even if we are not talking about a, a consequentialist utilitarian value to us, we're still talking about the transformation to us. How does, this, how does Mars transform us? How does you know, the exploration of space benefit us? So we're always talking about us, as the value words. So when you so ask the question, yeah. Oh, so when, when you talk about the value of space exploration, then the inherent assumption is that it's the value to humans. That's, that's the inherent assumption in many discussions. 
So to talk about a non-anthropocentric anthropocentric ethics, you do get into this in animal rights is probably where you, you encounter it first, recognizing that something like a chimpanzee may have a lot of qualities that humans have, and they may have awareness and, and feelings and all of this, you know, many traits that we value in ourselves. You then ask the question, is this medical experiment good or harmful to this chimpanzee from its perspective, independent of what is good for humans? So there are philosophers and people and, and ethical boards who've started looking at this for animal treatments. You try to, you try, you can't obviously put yourself in, in a chimpanzee's shoes, but you can at least try and come up with an ethical framework that says even though chimpanzee testing is beneficial to humans through, through you know, many ways, we are choosing not to do it from a non-anthropocentric argument. So you can do that, but it gets trickier when you talk about objects like Mars or, or space. From, from the point of view that the, the value, what is the value of potential life on Mars on humans? But what if there's no life? What about just an ice ball? Like, what's the, the series, the you know, large asteroid in, in the asteroid belt, or the, the dwarf planet in the asteroid belt? Um, not to offend anyone out there. <laughs> I have a strong opinion about dwarf planets. Um, I mean, we're sending a mission, a Dawn, I believe. Is it, I think it's Dawn that's going to Ceres. Mm-hmm. Um, we have an interest in this. Maybe there's some, you know, there's astrobiological interest in that, but there's also a lot of... Um, interested in all the rest of the asteroids that maybe have less astrobiological relevance. Perhaps these things are valuable just because they exist. A maybe deeper question is, does value itself have any meaning apart from human existence? So that's what a lot of philosophers would say. They would say, well, we're humans, we made up the concept of value. So to have humans go away and then talk about value is sort of somewhat meaningless. Um, but if you go like that, that means that humans are inherently more valuable than, than you know, my lamppost, which, you know, I can understand and I, I'll follow with that. Most possibly agree with that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, I guess it's, it's where I slip. <laughs> so here's maybe another way to, to think about it. Um, so if all humans were to go extinct immediately, like in an instantaneous event where there's zero chance of any survivors and... You don't have time to feel sad for anyone else because we all just die immediately. Human race is gone. Is that good or bad or neither? And the answer is possibly neither because there's no one around for whom it is bad. So I guess I that's where... That would be bad for you guys. We don't have a podcast anymore and you know other things. But if we're all gone, there's no one around to be sad. Unless there's another intelligence out there. And then, Unless there's another form of intelligence. I think that's an interesting approach that I think is very underappreciated among philosophers. I think that's one of the reasons we are interested in the search for intelligent life. Is to give value to us? Inherently? If there was another valuer out there, it would change the way we think about ourselves a little bit. Because then whatever we do is at least going to be reacted to by an outsider. It's the way that people as a civilization used to believe in, in 
you know, a god, big G, or many little gods, little G. Probably more even the little god, little G gods, where it was you could directly influence the god's behavior by making a sacrifice, and then the weather will change in your favor. Not that we're going to think along those lines that we can really make an intelligent civilization do something, but just knowing that they're there reacting to us, I think will change the way we think about ourselves a little bit. That's really interesting. And so us being alive down the line for other intelligence to appreciate or not us depends on our survival. And so right. if, it's, if it's cool with you, I'd like to change gears a little bit and talk about yeah. another value that we haven't touched on, and that's the, uh, the option value. That is, does space exploration provide an option for us in case you know, we, are, we continue the trend we're doing and we really alter uh, our planets? And as a caveat, our planet will be fine. It's just us. We'll have trouble adapting. Um, because, you know, one of the values of space exploration is not only putting the telescopes looking away, but also looking back at our planet. And so all the science behind Earth observation is extremely valuable to, econ uh, to our economy, but also to a more longer-term human sustainability on the planet. Because we are causing irreversible changes to our climate, we are changing the planet's ability to handle our growing population. And so Earth escape for humans become a, becomes a safety net to maybe if, if stuff really goes wrong as a way for our survival down the line. So is investment in a safety net important? I mean, I paid premium to have airbags in my car. Could we use that same train of thought to, to enhance the value of space exploration? So that's that option value, right? I think that's actually, that argument to me, would make sense to a very wide audience. And that fits, uh, from what I understand it, very well with the NASA's goal of, of human space exploration. And I know sometimes scientists may criticize NASA for overextending into basic sciences that are more in the domain of maybe you know, the National Science Foundation or something like that. You know, I'm not saying NASA shouldn't fund things like that, but I would love to see NASA tell people that, hey, we are doing this because it's important for our future, in addition to inspiring young minds and in addition to all these other things and the technology you get, I mean, maybe we should be thinking about survival. And I don't know if that would scare people and they don't want to think about the fact that we might need such a thing someday. But there's really great arguments for why you might want, you know, at least an orbiting colony of enough humans that could stay healthy in case a pandemic breaks out and then they could help direct the recovery without infecting themselves. And worst case, they would keep you know the genetic integrity of humans if everybody you know dies or something. Um, you know, based on the moon, um, there's arguments that you even want to store you know our knowledge and maybe some cultural artifacts offsite in order to help protect them against some sort of large catastrophe, you know, global nuclear war or something like that. So these arguments are there, and there are reasons you may want to do this and. That is a big value of space exploration. I mean, do you hear that discussed much, the, the survival resilience argument for going into space? No, and the reason I think it's because the way investments are made, at least in, in this country, in the U.S., is that people invest to get a return. And if you don't get a return in three, five years, it's not considered a good investment, mm -hmm. right? And that's why startups fail often, as often as they do, because they don't return that money and then the investor pulls the plug. And so having big investments where the return are 200, 500 years down the line, it's just like politicians cannot wrap their hand around that. 
And that's probably one of the problems is because, you know, they're worried about getting reelected. And if they put in policies that, you know, will mature 200 years down the line, then that's not going to help their campaigns. And yeah. so I, I think you're yeah, it right. seems like you would need a space program that is decoupled from the governmental procedures of re-election and stuff. And that's transforming the way, you know, NASA and other space agencies are governed. And maybe we need that. I don't know. Well, so that's maybe a good place to go next. And, and you know, maybe then we could, you know, have a little bit of conversation with everyone else. But um, so there is a trend that started you know, very recently that there are private companies now interested in space exploration. You know, SpaceX and, and, and SpaceX to me is the most serious. Mars One, I, I'm not sure if they will actually get to Mars, but there's interest in, in people doing these kind of feats. And I mean, SpaceX is clearly a for-profit company, but they're they're trying to accomplish goals that are very altruistic. And while, you know, congressmen may or may not be happy with what's going on with NASA dollars and whether or not we sh should be prioritizing Mars, there is private interest in doing that anyway, <coughs> which is very interesting to me because it says that people do, at least some people, do find value in that beyond the immediate economic gain. And so it, it's at least encouraging to me that we're seeing this. I'm, I'm hoping that it will be a large player in the future. Space exploration is still mostly government-led, but at least it's encouraging to see private space exploration as well. Yeah, and the fact that it's changing is, I think, going to transform the entire the industry. Uh, SpaceX does it very cleverly in the sense that they have contracts with NASA to ferry payloads to the space station, and so they have an income that way. And then their, their profit is reinvested in R&D to develop bigger and better rockets because they... And I think Elon, Elon Musk understands in the, the value of the potential unknowns that exists beyond low Earth orbit. Like, there might be resources in asteroids that exist, and we don't know what to do with them yet. But once we know they're there, then the economic machine that a human brain is will figure out a way to sell it <laughs> yeah. and make a profit. Oh, and you in know, fact, and we know of asteroids that have stuff we could sell now. So if you get there, even if there aren't any unknown surprises, you're still going to make bank. <laughs> yeah. yeah, precious metals, and, and it's a completely open market, which is why there are, there are other companies out there, planetary resources, deep space industries, that are actively investing in this asteroid. And because there is this return on investment that is healthily beyond the three five years that's typically done, so maybe maybe the attitudes are changing, and maybe yeah. that's a good thing for humanity. So then, maybe as, as a final, like turning that back around on itself. Um, do you think that a corporate-led space exploration venture may infringe upon the goals of scientists, perhaps? Because government-funded space exploration is slow, but it tends to be led by scientists, and it tends to further science and education goals. Now, I would suspect that anyone going to Mars, even if it's SpaceX, they're going to have some scientists, but their goals might be very different. And that may under some scenarios, actually hurt the progress of science and inquiry and discovery. You know, I completely agree with you. Um, I think it would have to be a for-profit company with a non-profit attitude <laughs> that, you know, understands the inherent value of science. I think it would be very unwise for humanity to explore space without a poet, without a scientist, without added value that goes beyond the bottom margin. Um, and I also think it would be very unhuman for us to do so. Um, I think it's impossible to decouple your emotions from your gain of profits. 
particularly in the space arena. Um, it reminds me of, of the quote from uh, Contact, Carl Sagan's book, and in the movie that Brigody Foster in the movie is looking at this amazing site, and she says, oh, they should have sent a poet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, Jacob, we've been going like for like 45 minutes. Do you want to summarize maybe the different kinds of value that we've talked about um, in terms of yeah. value theory of space exploration? Sure, yeah, that would be a good way to think about it. So we, we started with, a, you know, a very basic two-axis kind of instrumental versus intrinsic value, and that's very common in philosophy. If, if you're listening to this and you ever run into those terms, they're very common. It's a very simplistic way of thinking about it, as, as was made apparent in our discussion, because things will probably have both of those. Uh, so what we talked about in relevance to space exploration and valued space resources was... Uh, something like use value or, or utilitarian value, that there are resources that we can use now or soon, and that is the value in space is only so much as it, as it benefits us. Um, there might be transformation, transformative value, as we talked about, where space resources can help us reflect upon ourselves, help us, help us change ideas, change our preferences, re-examine ourselves, and come to new ideas or understanding. There's the option value, where there are resources that we may not be using now or anytime soon, but we invest in space exploration because we will be able to use those. Uh, that might be the option to use commercial resources. It might be the option to protect ourselves from extinction or, or from threats uh, to our integrity. So there is an argument that we should explore space because it will give us value in the future of many types. Um, and then finally, there is the existence value argument that maybe space and natural resources and the universe just has inherent value in and of itself by virtue of being a project of nature. And that doesn't mean you don't ever set foot on another planet because you're going to harm it, but it, it raises some interesting questions about, you know, does a rock or a planet have value just by virtue of being? And that's perhaps a more difficult way one to, to see, but um, I think at least thinking about that is going to be essential to, to moving forward. Just yeah. I, I would add one category to that, which is the inherent, immediate, human-centered value where space exploration is ongoing and is active now, you know, and it, 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 it excites talent. There's no, no way around it. It just does. It inspires poets. It challenges academics. It optimizes the engineering thought process. You know, it employs tens of thousands of people, and through indirect contracts, perhaps even hundreds of thousands more. And so it really contributes today to the pulse of a living and active and modern economy. No, I, I think I completely agree with you. Well, I guess in keeping with our, our goals of the Blue Marble Space Institute of Science, perhaps one of the ways forward is to just keep educating people about the science that we're doing, and maybe the more it becomes relevant in people's everyday lives and in the lives of decision makers, um, maybe people will start to see that more and, and it will be less and less of a question of why we should explore space. Yep, so or maybe the question will become, why aren't we exploring space more? Yeah, exactly. It's not only about science, but it's all the value of the science. That's right. Well, I think this was a great conversation. Um, before we wrap up, I mean, Jeff and, and uh, Jen, did you have anything you wanted to add? Uh, well, that was uh, extremely entertaining and thought-provoking. I'm, I'm glad you guys brought that topic up. I think that the one uh, thing that you didn't touch on, which is uh, too deep to delve, delve into too far right now, but I feel like the 800-pound gorilla in the room on these issues is, is religion. And so you guys brought up some nice practical things, but then you also brought up the more esoteric things. And 
for me, when I'm trying to justify things in my own mind, you know, I'm usually not relying on economic ar- ar- uh, arguments. I'm, I'm kind of thinking, you know, why is science important and why is space exploration important on a much deeper level? And it's because, you know, we have this fundamental drive as, as humans to, to pursue knowledge and this need to understand the universe. And this is the one thing that we as intelligent species can do. But for many people out there, that's an irrelevant question because they've opted to answer that through religious um, arguments. And then you, you essentially nullify a whole set of justifications that are based on a need to understand because they've, they've opted to understand it in a theological manner as opposed to a evidence-based manner. That's a whole can of worms <laughs> that I, we can't get into it the, the remaining time left. But I think it's an interesting point just for future thought is that uh, this is something we're always reluctant to talk about because we never... We're always reluctant to get in any kind of science versus religion issue because we'd like to see those as um, compatible concepts. But at some point, there is a point where they they do come into a little bit of overlap, and, and that's a, an area of interest. Now, that's a very good point. I mean, I think you're right. If you've decided that we already have all the questions answered, then why seek questions that don't need answering? I don't yeah, really or if you seek to answer those questions through a theological filter. I mean, even if you think that, well, theology hasn't answered all the questions, you know, why did God make the world, these kinds of things, but you choose to explore them in terms of a biblical record or spiritually as opposed to factually. It's just, it's a different, it's a choice that one can make, and to somebody who's made that choice, our arguments about the need to understand the universe via science is, is maybe irrelevant. So that was that was nicely put, Jeff. Um, and I think another, just in terms of the the motivation for space exploration, is I mean there are like NASA is, uh, and other people have come up with lists of technology transfer, and you know even though when we see the total budget for NASA, it's a big number. If you do it on a per person cost, it's not very big. Um, John Grossinger has a number he throws out when he talks about Mars Curiosity mission. He says it's about the cost of per person of going to a movie, and I think that sort of a, that you know gives you a, a sort of a number you can as an individual grasp <laughs> um, instead of 2.5 billion dollars for that mission. But I think for me, I guess even if people are worrying about more practical day-to-day challenges, I think everyone will agree that there's value in having sort of these bigger pictures, um, not not necessarily religion, but bigger pictures to inspire us to keep going. And people might get this from art, they might get this from nature, or they might get this from, you know, as Sandra's mentioned, looking up and thinking about, you know, what's beyond us and sort of what's bigger than us as individuals. And I think that's that's something that's valuable to advanced civilizations and certainly as, as successful countries. And there's essentially value and pride that comes with that. But I think, as you've already mentioned, it's just not, not something you can't measure easily. I guess you can't hear me shaking my head in agreement with you <laughs> on the audio. <laughs> but yeah, I think religion is an important topic. Um, it, it's I see it. Per, it's fine for people to believe that. You know, I think where the danger lies is if that becomes policy. Oh, we're setting on a kind of worms here. Well, well and, and the com- actually the comment you made too about looking back on Earth, I think that's even more relevant now as we're thinking as the question of climate change or the topic of climate change is uh, front and center <laughs> finally. You know, there are all the things, sorts of things we can do, learn from looking back on Earth from off Earth. <laughs> so maybe add as a, a brief point to what Jeff said that um, there's a role for theological education 
and I know in the astrobiology community, I've run into a few people. Uh, Ted Peters is a pretty prominent theologian, and then Lucas Mix is is a, a younger person who's trained in both science and theology. And I hear these theologians ta- talking about exactly these questions and talking to the scientists to make sure that they understand the the scientific implications, but then also trying to merge it with theology and bring that to their religious communities. It's a very tall order, but I'm encouraged that there's a few people trying because it's a real issue and you need theologians to be talking to religious people, not scientists. They're not going to trust the scientists, but um, yeah, at least there's that dialogue going on and hopefully we'll have more of that too. I mean, that's a topic we can we can talk about it in a future podcast and invite Lucas over. That would be great. Actually, Lucas would be a great speaker. So yeah. um, I think that's a good idea. Well, with that, that was a, a really fun discussion, guys. So thanks for tuning in. Listeners, you can check out uh, previous episodes at bmsis.org slash podcast. See you later. Science replaces private prejudice with publicly verifiable evidence. There's real poetry in the real world. Science is the poetry of reality. We can do science, and with it, we can improve our lives.